Women Taking the Lead, Episode 216. If you're going to be an effective leader, you have to consciously focus on it and work at it. It doesn't just happen. Hello, my name is Jody Flynn and welcome to Women Taking the Lead, where we are all about creating blasts of inspiration to help you overcome self-doubt so you can lead with confidence, integrity, and a sense of humor. Head over to womentakingthelead.com to join the community and get the resources to support you on your leadership journey. Now, your future awaits, so let's get started. The working world has changed. With the growth of the internet, there's never been more opportunities for you to level up. If you're looking for ways to have a bigger impact, the Alt-MBA could help you get there. Alt-MBA is an intensive leadership and management workshop designed for change makers who have a fire in the belly. This is for people who are itching to level up and make a bigger impact. The workshop splits you up into groups every week so you're meeting a bunch of people you'd otherwise never meet. You're getting and giving feedback and seeing your blind spots in a whole new way. The curriculum is entirely hands-on. More than 75% of your time is dedicated to shipping your work, practical projects that allow you to apply what you've learned. So if you're tired of courses that you never finish or videos you've only bookmarked, then put those aside and check out the Alt-MBA as a different way to level up. They're now accepting applications for the summer and fall sessions. To find out more, visit altmba.com forward slash women taking the lead. For special consideration, you can mention this podcast in their application and tell them Jody Flynn sent you. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us today. I'm here with Stephanie Breedlove, who is the authentic voice for women entrepreneurs. She has been walking the walk of a successful entrepreneur for over 20 years. After launching a career in corporate America with Accenture, she found her true calling as co-founder and CEO of Care.com HomePay, the nation's largest and most comprehensive household payroll and tax firm. Her startup grew to national leadership, was later acquired for more than $50 million, and plays a vital role in the quality and professionalism of the in-home care industry. Stephanie, that is just a quick intro for everyone. I know, like, just from the chat we had before we hit record, there is so much more to you, and I can't wait to share you with everyone. So if you could, tell us a little bit more about you, what you have going on in the world, and your own humble beginnings. Oh, absolutely. And Jody, it's a pleasure to be on the show today. Um, yeah, a few minutes about my humble beginnings. I, I actually think the best part of my entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial story that you were talking about is that I'm typical. I'm very relatable. I'm not from a long line of wealthy, connected people. And I also don't have a rags to riches story either. I have a finance degree from the University of Texas, and I got married between undergrad and graduate school. My husband was in Houston. My choices were Rice or the University of Houston, and I couldn't afford Rice. So off to U of H I went for an MBA. And as you said in the intro, I jumped right into corporate America, and this was the late 1980s, so I'm dating myself. And I spent six years with Accenture 
which at the time I thought was really progressive um, and a part of career women leading the way in the late 1980s and early 1990s into fields that were primarily dominated by men. And on this journey, my husband and I had two sons 16 months apart in the early 1990s and made a conscious choice like many couples back then that we could be a dual career couple um, and have a family as our preferred way of life. And we were optimistic that we could do it with satisfaction. So we hired a nanny. And we were early subscribers to in-home child care. Having a nanny wasn't real common then, but it is today. Um, and I think this commitment to the dual income life and hiring a nanny is what spurred the entrepreneurial calling. Um, and in my my humble beginnings, I actually really wasn't conflicted about whether or not I should have a career or focus at home. I, I knew I wanted to do both, but I became really focused on trying to find my best talents if I was going to be away from my kids and succeed as a professional and as a parent. And actually, my husband was feeling the same way. He actually left a demanding consulting career at Ernst & Young for a corporate finance job so he didn't have to work 60 hours a week. And then we had the idea. What if we helped people do the awful, boring, treacherous work of payroll taxes and understanding labor law when you hired someone to work in your home? We just we thought when more women would go back to work and more elderly would want to age at home. And so we launched an entrepreneurial test to help people with this crazy nanny tax world um, in three states, and we didn't even quit our jobs. Uh, we, we did what we, we call in today's terms a minimum viable product, and uh, we built some basic marketing and some basic delivery systems, and I didn't even quit my job. We were moonlighting in the evenings and the weekends. And um, long story short, after a couple of years, this idea on the side started to kill us. So in 1995, I quit my job to become a full-time entrepreneur and to go on the journey of taking the company national. And we decided to self-fund and we bootstrapped for several years. And once we started to grow and became profitable, three and a half years later, my husband joined the co-founder team. And as I say, we then went from the basement to a big deal. So that's, that's my story. I love that. And now you're a part of care.com, which is a great brand, I would say, to align yourself with that. You, like when we chatted before we hit record, you just when you mentioned it, you had such pride in your voice. Oh, thank you. Yes, we were acquired in 2012. So many, many years later by care.com. And it was a hand in glove fit. I mean, care.com is leading the way in helping to match families and caregivers to have them find each other easily and then go through the paces to hire successfully. And then my little company could come in on the back end and help take care of the relationship once the match has been made. So yes, it was a match made in heaven and the companies um, are so great for each other. Mm -hmm. And I've been hearing about it more and more because actually months ago, um, I heard it on one of my favorite podcasts, which was the Biz Chicks podcast. Um, and Natalie Ekdahl, who's been on this podcast as well, she was talking about, you know, kind of what you were talking about, like, what's the best use of your time, right? Is it doing the household chores or is it focusing on your business? So she, she kind of made the case for like, it's probably focusing on your business. Like if you, or 
actually, let me say this. She was talking about the difference between outsourcing tasks in the home and outsourcing tasks in the business. And mm-hmm. which would you want to do? And she gave examples of how you could do both. Of course, when I was listening, I'd be like, I would outsource household tasks <laughs> for sure before I would outsource anything in my business. Although there's times when and definitely a need for outsourcing in your business. But one of the resources she listed as if you want to do this, childcare and such, care.com. And then what I mentioned to you before we started recording was my sister-in-law is now a nanny with care.com and loves it. So I just keep hearing more and more about care.com. And it's so nice that you're doing the other side of things for people, which I'm sure is not what they want to be doing either, which is the hard task of how do you hire? How do you pay for it? How do you do the taxes on all of that? Because that could be a stumbling block for a lot of people getting the help that they need. It is not the sexy side of the of the relationship, that's for sure. Uh, but in my opinion, and obviously I'm I'm biased and I'm passionate, paying your caregiver legally and paying her professionally and having a professional relationship, it's not easy to do and people don't know about it. They don't know the rules and the regulations. But once you step into it, the relationship lasts twice as long. Um, our very first client stayed with us for 20 years. And I like to believe it's because they had a relationship about – how to handle pay and vacation and um, sick time and all the stuff you don't like to talk about. But when you have a company helping you along the way, it often saves the day. Mm, so amazing. Well, Stephanie, I love everything that you have going on. We definitely clicked when we chatted before the call. Like we, yes. we have very similar personalities and see the world in the same way. But I hate to say this. I always bring at this point, bring the guests to a low moment. <laughs> Right. Let's 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 talk about the playing small moment and we'll build from there. And the playing small moment, this this question comes from the Marianne Williamson quote, where she says, your playing small will not serve the world. And she encourages people to let their light shine so others can do the same. But when we're in that playing small moment, we just don't see our value and we're afraid to go after what we want. So, Stephanie, if you could share with us your playing small story and the lessons you've learned from it? Oh, I'd be happy to. I actually love the request to talk about this subject because we all have these moments far more often than we'd like to. Um, And, you know, through my own tough lessons, I've actually adopted a philosophy that I employ regularly, not only personally, but with my management team. And I've put a cliche quote behind it. I say, if you are not thinking big, you're thinking small. There's nothing in between. Um, And I say this because I don't mean we all have to have Facebook ideas every day. But it, it seems to be human nature, particularly for women, to stop short of letting an idea be all it can be and have the confidence to attempt to put strategy and execution behind an idea at a level of scale. Um, and having said that, I'll share a story for me on how I learned this lesson and why I feel so clear about this point. So the company was about five years old, and we were heads down 
we were working really hard, really smart. We were growing. We were improving. We were doing good things for our clients in our industry, adding staff. We were profitable. We were actually even very financially comfortable making more money than we had in our corporate jobs. So we we kind of had some prideful stuff going on. And to be honest with you, if somebody had asked me at the time, I would have said, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. I'm thinking big. Um, I'm not having a small moment. And then we got a phone call. I got a phone call from a competitor who I had met two or three times, did not know well. Um, and we were direct competitors nationally in the exact same space, which is rare in my little niche. And the call went like this. She said, Stephanie, listen, I'm guessing um, in watching you closely that you guys have you know, maybe a 1,000 clients, maybe you're around a half a million dollars in revenue, um, and you're doing good work, and I like what I see. I've been in the industry a little longer than you, and I'd like to open a dialogue to acquire your company. And I just kind of sat there and stared at the wall and thought, well, I didn't expect this. And she proceeded on why, um, and she proceeded on what she would like for me to think about. And I thanked her for her time, and I hung up the phone, and you know, I had all kinds of, you know, crazy curse words rolling around in my head going, oh, my gosh. And I realized that she saw our value, our momentum, our potential dominance in the industry, that we didn't have the potential to just help a thousand clients, which is about where we were, you know, but 10,000 or 100,000. And we were passing her. And I have to admit, I didn't see it at all. Completely. I had total blinders on. Um, and up to that point, I realized that I just for five years had not let myself think that we had the ability to scale our model to be 10 times its size. I believe that I only had the ability to go one step at a time um, and that it would be ridiculous to even entertain making the impossible possible, which that was kind of silly to even use that word because Anything's possible at a level. And it was a wake-up call. Um, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. And she was willing to take the risk to acquire us simply to take us out because she saw our skill and our power, and I didn't. Wow. And that was, I mean, that was, gosh, that was probably 20, no, 17, 18 years ago now. I, f I still feel like I carry some of those bricks with me because it almost was a blessing. I'm not sure I would have come out of that thinking small business mode. Um, I, my kids were in elementary school, and I was focused on them as well. And you're talking about the shift between business life and home life. And the lessons that I learned um, were pretty, pretty simple, that whatever you're doing, take time, tangible time, to just let yourself think big um, about not something that's going to happen tomorrow, but something on the horizon. And it's not even on the business plan. Don't put it on the business plan because then you have the pressure and the risk to say, oh, my gosh, if I don't achieve this, then I'm a failure. Um, then, you know, I'm, I'm in the failure category rather than the success category. And so what we did is we set aside the quarterly and the annual goals. I mean, I'll give you an example rather than saying, okay, let's talk about if growth in the next 12 months is going to be 20 to 22%. We just sat down and said, okay, there are millions of people, families with ongoing care in the home. There are 400,000 people currently paying legally. We help a thousand of them. Why can't we help 40,000 
um, and have 10% of the marketplace? And why can't we shift some of those millions into paying legally and have nowhere to go but up at 10, 20 times the size that we currently are? And to that point, we never had that conversation. And we started having that conversation every single year. And we didn't write it down. Um, but it was always kind of in the back of every major strategic conversation we would have throughout the year if we made ourselves do that. And, you know, you talked about the business success, but it translated. I, I'm not sure if we would have gone from more than helping a thousand clients to maybe 5,000, which would have been a very successful small business. You know, instead, the company is now serviced about 75,000 clients, has 25,000 active clients. And that's a long way from that thousand when that call came in the door. <laughs> it's almost like it created a crisis moment in your business. Although it wasn't a crisis, it created enough urgency for you to be like, oh, my God, what are we doing? Yeah, it actually made me feel stupid. And no one wants to feel that way. And the reality is, is I thought to myself, I'm a really good small business owner. And I realized in that moment that I was what was holding the business back. And that made me not as good as I thought I was. And I've kept that with me. Mm. Have you heard of Grant Cardone's book, The 10X Rule? Yes. You are speaking right to the, what he's saying in that book. Like you have got to 10X your thoughts. Otherwise, you will just constantly hobble yourself and hold yourself back in your business. He's exactly right. And, you know, a lot of listeners may be saying, you know, you know, I I'm never going to 10x my goals. Well, you, you probably won't. I mean, that's very rare. But the reality is, if you 10x your thoughts, you will 3x your goals. And otherwise, you, you won't increase them at all. Mm. Now, Stephanie, if you could share with us another story, this one of Another, it's a similar type of story, but a little bit different, a little more positive. Um, a time when you had a wake up call, the aha moment, the light bulb going off. For some, it's instantaneous. And for others, it's like, like some, some people will say, well, I wish it was instantaneous. For me, it had, it was slow. The universe kept hitting me over the head. But in either case, there's usually a moment when you're ready to take action. So if you could share with us a story about your wake up call, what led up? to that moment of action, and then the steps you took that led to your success. I have a great aha moment story. Um, and, and it's interesting you just said, uh, I was about to say I did have an actual moment, and I did. Yeah. But before the moment, I do think the universe was beating me over the head for months and months and months. So I think that's typical before the moment comes. Um, and I'm going to start with the word conditioning. I love the word conditioning. And my story, I think, is about breaking from being conditioned. Uh, we are conditioned by societal norms. It's just the way it is. Um, and as we seek change, we bump up against these societal norms that we are conditioned to conform to, and it creates doubt. And for me, this is wrapped around the entrepreneurial journey. And I had an aha moment to begin the journey that I love to tell the story of. So I mentioned a moment ago that we didn't take this grandiose entrepreneurial leap. We took this low-risk hop into a test for a couple of years. And it was easy at first. It fed my confidence and my entrepreneurial spirit. And I spent a few minutes in the evenings and a couple of hours on the weekends. And then two years in, it really began to grow all on its own. You know, proof we had a good idea and we were delivering good stuff. And 
it would just sound logical, especially in this conversation, that you would just say, okay, it's time to take the full-time leap, um, particularly in today's ecosystem where, you know, being an entrepreneur is very, very popular. Well, I think I knew in my gut that I had what it took to do this full-time um, and to be successful or even to handle and take great things from the failure, you know, that gut calling to go where you're supposed to go and then – there was months and months and months of doubt and stiff-arming the decision to go full-time um, and take this national because, going back to my original point, society said I couldn't be a career, a good career woman and a parent, much less a good entrepreneur and a parent. Society said that people with good degrees and great jobs, which I had, shouldn't toss it out for great risk and financial pain. And... Society said I was going to be irresponsible because I had two children and I had uh, a family savings I was going to deplete and a college fund that I had to halt and I'm going to have to buy my kids clothes at Walmart and work out of my home. And this was even less normal than being a corporate woman in 1995. And then one Saturday afternoon, this was the moment. I still remember it um, vividly. It was right before I made the tough decision to go full-time and to try to launch the company nationally. I was sitting in our basement office. It was a late afternoon. My boys were napping. I hadn't showered yet that day. Nap time was going to end soon. I could feel the panic of it ending. I still had a couple more hours of work to do, and I was asking with a really guilty tone for my husband to handle wake-up and dinner prep without me. And that all sounds terribly nightmarish. And I remember turning back to my work in the basement office on the Saturday afternoon and thinking, I would rather be here, unshowered, filled with stress and doubt and risk, and feeling how good I feel right now about what I'm doing than putting on my suit and going, on to, my, going to my corporate job on Monday morning. And that was the moment, and that was the epiphany, and I've never looked back. Um, so you asked me, what are the steps that I took and what, and I'm still taking them. Um, I think I can give you three of them. I decided first that if the path felt right, that it was my responsibility and my job to set aside the societal norms and not let them take control of me, which I'm still doing. I feel that the potential, if the potential benefit to everybody involved in the decision is great, then I have a responsibility to break with the norm. The second is I do my very best to hang on to the belief that I can indeed shepherd an idea, whatever it is, to success. I call it blind optimism. You and I talked about it before we started the call. And you have to be smart about your shepherding. But this belief is common to entrepreneurs, and it's my experience that it is often the difference between success and failure. And then the third step is my biggest one, the ongoing focus on self-awareness. In that moment, I had to own that I really didn't want to give up nice clothes or date nights or new furniture. And I had to be honest about how uncomfortable I was and if I was willing to be uncomfortable and how hard I was willing to work. Um, and to be honest, it was more uncomfortable and harder than I envisioned. And I think it's this self-awareness that got me up over the hump, and I now try to take it with me in every decision that I make. 
I love that. And you definitely come across as somebody who's self-aware. And, you know, the, the proof I have of that is like how quickly we connected when we first came on the line. You are so real. You're so genuine. Um, you know, even in your bio, you're the authentic voice. And I remember when I read that line, I was like, that's a really bold, interesting comment to make. But as soon as we got on the phone, I was like, I can read that line with confidence because that is who you are. Like you just show up that way. Thank you. And my meaning behind authentic is really transparently telling it like it is. Yes. (laughs) I love that, Stephanie. And I have to say that moment, wow, that is a wake up call. I remember that moment. I had a moment like that. It was after I was already in business, but starting to experience self doubts. But it was so clear to me. There was, there was no going back. There was only going forward. So no matter how hard it was, you know, I was in the right place. I was going in the right direction. I was where I was meant to be. And so it was just to keep moving forward. So I can definitely, even though they, those moments came at two different points on each of our timelines, I can definitely relate to that moment and love that the steps that you're continuing to take, because it is, it's a lot of just continuing. Like we, we said before, like there's no made it, you know, in reality, no. people talk about making it like I, I what you know, people have this dream, like when I finally made it, it I'm, I'm sorry if I'm bursting somebody's bubble, but that never comes, you know, because we're human beings and we're wired for the next thing. We're wired for growth and we're wired for learning. And so when we achieve a goal, what instantly happens is we start thinking of the next thing. And so I love that you said it had, I haven't gotten there yet, but I'm, I'm taking the steps. Yeah. And when you achieve a goal to the outside world, you may look like You've made it, as you just said. Mm -hmm. But the process of achieving that goal typically has good, bad, and ugly. Yeah. (laughs) Truth. Hashtag truth, Stephanie. I love it. And Stephanie, I'm very interested how you're going to answer this question because you've probably seen it too. There, you know, there's no cookie cutter leader. You know, we all bring different things to the table in terms of our experience, our personalities, our strengths, our weaknesses. So each person has a different leadership style. We all show up a little bit differently. So Stephanie, how would you describe your leadership style? Jody, you couldn't be more right. There is no one way to be an effective leader. I think that's what makes a lot of the books written and the reading out there so interesting. However, I think there is one thing in common. If you're going to be an effective leader, you have to consciously focus on it and work at it. It doesn't just happen. And I think second, you have to bring your best traits and talents so that your leadership um, is is real and valuable and authentic, as we were just talking about. Um, and here's my style. It doesn't make me the right leader, but it makes me, I think, the best leader I can be. I have kind of two two parts to how I look at, at leadership. First is excellence is non-negotiable. My staff used to call this the breed love bar, and I'm pretty sure it was both a challenge and empowering. Now, I just gave you a very daunting statement that excellence mm-hmm. is non-negotiable, but it takes on a whole new meaning when I add the second part of my philosophy, which is excellence is non-negotiable and we will achieve it together. 
And I have four core ingredients that I think if I had to define my style that um, are my recipe for making this a reality. Um, The first is that I believe the investment in mentorship as a way of working, not as an extra, is smart business. And this is um, a novel concept because I think that mentorship gets a lot of talk and not a not a lot of walk these days. And I'll give you some examples. Um, in the business, we started with a 10-day formal training program for all new hires, followed by a month of shadowing with a manager to ensure success once you fly solo. Most companies don't want to take the time and invest in that. Every employee has an informal quarterly review to talk about skill growth and new efforts and talents. Managers are evaluated on the abilities of their team. And when someone is promoted, they have a six-month period with their superior in which skill growth is the focus because we don't assume someone can step into a position that's new and fly. And I could go on and on and on. Um, But this investment, it builds a foundation of passionate, engaged people, and it translates to the bottom line. So second, I believe in the power of accountability, and it's what really makes the investment in mentorship work. So many leaders are uncomfortable in this space. They just kind of expect their people to perform or to give back as much as they might be getting, and it doesn't work this way. If you want equal give and take, which I think is where the sweet spot of success is, you have to set expectations, and you have to measure the return for the investment that you're giving. Um, Without it, as I just said, all of the training and the mentorship and the professional growth focus, it wouldn't have an ROI. So I have always gone through the painful steps of setting tangible expectations, measuring accomplishments, um, and having a tangible list of what ongoing assistance looks like for improvement. And the funny thing about this is this not only helps people have equal give and take in your company and your relationship, it actually weeds out those who aren't happy because people who aren't happy, they want to coast. They don't want you to invest in them and they don't want to be accountable. And they often cut themselves off before you have the guts to let them go. So there's an extra benefit in in accountability. That's an amazing layer. (laughs) (laughs) It really is. I have two more. Um, The third for me is team is everything. And I know that that, that's a cliche that gets a lot of talk, but really, um, one of our five core hiring criteria is the individual must prioritize team over individual success because I believe that when a team succeeds first, then the individual succeeds at much higher levels and not the other way around. Um, And I'll give you an example. Um, In strategy meetings, execution planning, problem solving, in my leadership style, we work from a top-down approach and we involve every single stakeholder we can, turn over every stone before the vision and the solution gets narrowed and gets handed over to an individual to go do the work. Empower the team so then the individual can go do the best job possible. And then fourth, and this one is a little novel as well, and I could do a whole show on this one. (laughs) Communication is key, and it's never overrated. Um, 
I've engaged in teaching the power of comprehensive and clear communication as smart business, from the basics of templatized emails uh, to having zero balls dropped in the handoff from one team to another, um, to having all stakeholders included in thorough conversation and communication. I, I mean, think of it this way. How many times have you made a mistake, wasted copious amounts of time, unintentionally miscommunicated, um, or failed to include all stakeholders because we just didn't prioritize the importance of effective communication? So um, it's it's one that I also think tracks to the bottom line and at a bare minimum creates great efficiency. Oh, I have to say, Stephanie, I'm just compelled to say this. Communication is one of those things where we all say it's important, but we don't do enough to make sure it stays a high priority. Yeah, and it's really hard work, um, and it's one that I'm just I'm just diligent about. Um, we have a quote that we ha- have had hanging on our wall in the office because we heard it so often from our clients, and they would say, "You have the most clear, helpful, action-oriented communication of any company I work with." And I would think to myself, "Oh, I'm so proud to hear this." And then my next thought was, "But that makes me so sad that so few companies actually see the value in this level of communication." Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Ugh. Well, I want to focus on you for a little while because I know you've got some some things going on that we are going to want to hear about. So, Stephanie, what is one thing you are working on right now that you're really excited about and want to share with us? I have one really, really big thing yeah. I'm very excited to share. Um, as you said in the intro, um, my company was acquired by care.com and I exited a couple of years ago and I did not jump back into business, which is what I just naturally thought I would do after a 20 year journey in entrepreneurship. And I think I will, but I've answered a new calling. Um, I have stepped into the role as an author and an advocate for women entrepreneurs. And I've written a book to not only help women answer the call, but to build scalable businesses. Um, the book's called All In. How Women Entrepreneurs Can Think Bigger, Build Sustainable Businesses, and Change the World. And it actually came back, and you've probably got – the idea came about um, – you've probably got an idea from my story that in the early days when I started the business – there were lots of women around me starting small businesses and running small businesses, and actually, there was a lot of camaraderie. But as we scaled and we grew to enterprise size, and revenue began to climb, and we crossed the ten million dollar mark and on the way to fifteen million, I all of a sudden, all of a sudden, felt very alone. And when I started to research to write all in, I got energized about the reason for writing it. When I learned that there are actually less than fourteen thousand women that have ownership in businesses with over $10 in revenue. And lack of role models is one of the top three reasons that women don't start or take the tough steps to grow a business. So I decided to write All In, and I've been on that journey for the last year. And it combines research-based information because I believe knowledge is power, but it adds the strategies and the guidance from my real journey. And I think it's one of the few books on the marketplace written for women entrepreneurs by women by a woman entrepreneur. And the goal is really to help close that gap just a little so that women can see what they want to be. There just aren't enough of us yet out on the path who have the time and a complete journey to step into this conversation. So I have. 
I love this because I think that's a lot of it. It's like you can't, you do have to be all in, you know, it does have to be a passion. And I'm kind of, we were talking earlier before we hit record and I know we keep saying that. So for those of you who are listening, I'm so sorry. Stephanie and I did really have a great conversation before we hit record. But one thing we were talking about was the synchronicities that were coming up in the conversation. And now I'm getting the chills again because I was just on a call last night where, um, it was a, a group of friends and someone issued a challenge and said, are you all in? And like, that was the mantra. She's like, this is the theme. This is what we're working with. And now the next day I'm interviewing you and the name of your book is All In. Wow. I love that. Yeah. I yeah. love that. So, so grateful to have you here, Stephanie. Um, and I know we are running a little short on time. So, but this is perfect timing because we're going into the quick leadership roundup. So for each of the questions, um, a sentence or two is perfect So Stephanie, what is one practice you have that helps to make you a better leader? Well, you gave me a perfect segue because I think my number one practice is being all in Mm -hmm. in all that I do. Total willingness to make the tough decisions, to be the bad guy if it's the right path, um, and to push through those barriers in making that decision. What advice would you give your younger self? I think the advice would be to a self um, that is almost as old as I am now, (laughs) so just recently, is to not just be okay, but be comfortable and confident in being different if that's where your best talents are. It's just recently that I really embraced this, and I found a whole new level of fulfillment. Now share with us a success quote or a mantra and why it has meaning for you. I love quotes, so this is easy. My favorite quote is by Eleanor Roosevelt. Never allow a person to tell you no who does not have the power to say yes. And I love this one because it's human nature for the people in our lives to issue words of caution um, more than voice support. And we need to make sure that we don't give those voices more power than they actually have. Oh, that's perfect. And lastly, Stephanie, what is the best way for this community to connect with you? Well, you can find my book pretty much anywhere if you're interested on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, or your local bookstore. I have a website that is very content rich um, and full of tools. It's easy. It's stephaniebreedlove.com. And if you want to follow me on social media, I'm at, at @breedlovesteph. Love it. Okay. And for those of you who are listening, you know that you can find all the links and resources that Stephanie's been sharing in this episode at womentakingthelead.com. And Stephanie, my goodness, thank you so much for taking the time to inspire and enlighten us. We are all better for having met you. My pleasure. What fun. Before we say goodbye, I want to give a huge shout out to Millie Welsh at Zebra Lab Web Solutions. She does the hosting for the Women Taking the Lead website, as well as the SEO and payment solutions. So if you need help with any of these things, contact Millie at ZebraLoveWebSolutions.com. Thank you all for joining me on Women Taking the Lead. And to strengthen you on your own leadership journey, I'd like to send you off with a quote from Marianne Williamson. So here goes. Our deepest fear is not that we are inadequate. Our deepest fear is that we are powerful beyond measure. It is our light, not our darkness, that most frightens us. 
We ask ourselves, who am I to be brilliant, gorgeous, talented, fabulous? Actually, who are you not to be? You are a child of God. Your playing small does not serve the world. There is nothing enlightened about shrinking so that other people won't feel insecure around you. We are all meant to shine as children do. We were born to make manifest the glory of God that is within us. It's not just in some of us, it's in everyone. And as we let our own light shine, we unconsciously give other people permission to do the same. As we are liberated from our own fear, our presence automatically liberates others. Again, thank you for joining me, and here's to your success.